There's a lot of talk about data science. Newsrooms are investing in staffers who are data savvy, and universities are creating data science-related majors. However, there's not a real consensus on just what data science is. A new journal is hoping to create a shared understanding of data science, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics, Department and Richard Campbell, former chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Jali Ming. Ming is the Whipple V.N. Jones Professor of Statistics at Harvard University. His research interests include the theoretical foundations of statistics, statistical methodologies, and the application of statistics in areas such as engineering or the social sciences. Ming is also the editor-in-chief of the recently launched Harvard Data Science Review. Jali, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, to just get started, could you talk about what the mission of the journal is? Absolutely. Uh, to put it very simply, the mission of Harvard Data Science Review, uh, which is kind of pretty ambitious mission, is to really help to define and shape what data science is. Uh, exactly like what you said, because there have been a lot of talk about data science, but it has been a very hard to define what it is. And uh, so what we hope is to, through publications, through the kind of articles and the content we select, we will showcase uh, what are all the relevant um, uh, parties of data science. And uh, what I have discovered in the last year working on this is we found data science, as probably everybody expected, is really very broad. Mm -hmm. And I'd be happy to follow up with some details later. So you, in your editorial, in, in the first issue that just came out, you described data science as an ecosystem. So could you talk a little bit about why you picked that metaphor? Yes. Uh, that's, thank you for asking that question. I was hoping somebody noticed that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, seriously, because that if, what happened is that if you just think about data science as a single discipline, you will run into all sorts of issues as I was trying to uh, elaborate in my editorial. And, uh, uh, but if you really think about uh, data science as, as a way of thinking as how much it involves in any kind of discipline, it's very hard to think about any sort of single discipline where data science is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think, of, think of it holistically and also look through all the editorial members that uh, on my board, I realized what we're talking about here, it, the best word is really a really an ecosystem because you know it certainly evolves, it feeds on itself, and uh, it also has all kinds of um, uh, uh, you know complications like any any ecosystem has. And particularly it could even have some disasters, just like you have natural disasters within uh, within the natural ecosystem, particularly with all these uh, you know uh, all these AI development, the, uh, the 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 technology that their impact on on the society. So, so that's sort of that's the only, the best words I can come up with and um, to describe the the enormous scope of the data science itself. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your? Um... You don't like the term big data. So, uh, and can you talk about why that is? And uh, uh, I've both read in places and seen, seen you talk about this. So could you, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. I, you know, I guess any reputable statistician probably know the limitation of the big phrase of big data the, the, uh, for a very simple reason. I think a big data is a very catchphrase, and I can completely understand why it is something mm -hmm. that as a more a sort of a PR tool that would be very effective. But the problem with the term big data is it simply just only emphasize the size of the data mm -hmm. without, uh, you know, have any indication on the on the quality of the data. And I think by now, uh, many people, uh, you know, understand that uh, uh, the data quality is really far more important than data quantity. And, you know, I've done some recent work to show mathematically why it's absolutely crucial to take into account the data quality because uh, it's so easy to be misled by thinking, oh, I have millions of people or millions of answers, but, you know, my most recent work uh, just showed really mathematically you could have like, you know, a few million people, but you end up with the, in terms of the real information in in the, these uh, data is only worth like, you know, like a few hundred uh, answers from a well-controlled, you know, study. So mm -hmm. I think uh, it's a kind of a, uh, a problem that I think that we need to work on more, and that's the reason that I feel the term uh, big data itself uh, probably has helped to uh, encourage people to think about only the size of data without worry about the quality, the complexity, the variety, mm -hmm. all kinds of things about the data. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what you mean by data quality? Just just characterize that and, and then differentiate that with, I mean, I think we understand what quantity is in this context, but, but what do you mean when you're talking about the quality of data? Sure. Let me give you a specific example, and again, from uh, my most recent study uh, using the 2016 election as an example. Um, during that time, there were many, many surveys, uh, opinion polls conducted by you know, newspapers, radio stations, online, right? and you will see uh, lots and lots of uh, these, these surveys. So if you think about the data quantity, you will say, oh, wow, there are so many of them. Right? I did some rough calculations uh, based on like a couple months before the election date. Uh, there were probably up to uh, about 2.3 million people have responded. That's about 1% of the voting population. That probably is, a, is, a, is an overestimate by itself. And uh, so, you know, to put that in, in, in a specific content, um, that's about like a 2,200 surveys, each with 1,000 people in it. Now, if you work in the sort of a survey area or, or your or even just a general, uh, uh, you know, public person to try to understand what that means, you will see. Oh, well, that's a lot of surveys, right? A thousand person uh, a survey is a is a decent size. Most surveys probably vary from few hundred to few thousand. You probably never see a survey with hundred thousand people in, in opinion polls. Mm -hmm. right? And so you will think about that's you know, if I have over like two thousand surveys and each with one thousand, uh, uh, you know, uh, responses, and if they are all point to the same direction, you pretty much are convinced that that's the reality. And we all know what really happened uh, afterwards, uh, you know, almost uh, uh, regardless of your ideology, which party you're supporting or not supporting, we're all surprised, say, how could all these surveys went wrong, uh, you know, uh, in, in all direction. But the surprise comes is not because any particular survey said, uh, you know, uh, Clinton was going to win, is this collective Sort of number, and we think, oh, that's a huge number of you know of uh, numbers uh, people have responded. But my calculation, uh, what I did there is, since we know what uh, 
the answer was the retreats after election that there's a way to back back calculate uh, how much bias in people's reporting behaviors. When I say bias here, it meant to say people refuse to give the answer when they actually have an opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily means that people lie. This is simply uh, saying you know they just say, "Well, I don't feel comfortable to give the answer." And with taking that into account, my calculation shows that you know this. 2.3 million people, you end up with about the, the information in that data set is statistically equivalent, meaning that I can show mathematically uh, that complete equivalent to about 400 people report to wow. you on, on, honestly. Oh and that's wow. the kind of calculation what I meant by the data quality, because what happened is there was this bias. Mm. The bias is induced by people's self-selected way to respond. Mm. The whole survey series, the whole sort of, essentially the whole statistical series, mostly is based on the ideas that data are representative. And mm -hmm. uh, what I was able to show is that when it deviates from this representativeness and, and how striking it, it will be that if even if it seems a small deviation that uh, you know uh, because of the large population there is a multiplying effect which is a little bit detailed I won't get into it but basically there this phenomenon is that the larger the population is the more of these bias gets confirmed they're not gets eliminated and that's essentially uh, goes against you know the, the common wisdom. If you have lots of data that should be getting right, well, unfortunately, the lots of data only helps to confirm the bias, and it's that kind of a bias that affects the data quality. And there are specific ways to to measure that. Mm -hmm. That's by that's what I mean by data quality. You've talked about the idea of data science being an ecosystem and this issue of data quality. What kinds of articles are you hoping to um, see published in the Data Science Review? That's a great question. If you look at the first issue, just specific on the data quality issue itself, we have uh, we had a three articles, and one is by a computer scientist, and it, which is you know normally people would expect a computer scientist statistician can talk about data and the data processing, data analysis, and uh, uh, yes, that was the article uh, uh, we do that. But then we also have two articles. One is from a leading scholar in uh, social science, in, in information library science. And she really talks about uh, the kind of issues that most of us probably uh, know it's there, but we don't know how much it really involved. She talked about what she called it, the aft lives of the data. The idea mm -hmm. is that if you know the data gets collected and being used by someone, but uh, these good data or particularly large uh, scale data set usually will be used by by future investigators and, and the researchers. And in order in order for them to use the data properly, there are lots of documentation needs to be done. So called the you know the data curation and data province. And these are the issues usually the neither computer scientists or statisticians actually we really you know work on it, but it's incredibly crucial because that it directly affects the data quality. Mm -hmm. um, on the other end, I have another uh, person, uh, a leading philosopher, uh, wrote about the notion of the data itself is really a philosophical subject because her point is that there's no such thing as raw data. Uh, the mm -hmm. moment you decide what to collect, how to collect it, and how to measure it, you know, uh, these all affects your your analysis and the conclusion. So these actually go directly into data quality issues. And so the kind of article, you know, HDSR wants to publish is goes beyond the typical 
data science journals which focus on the more qual quantitative, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, yeah, the more quantitative aspect analysis, the sort of a computing part. But we really want to uh, look at data and data science from a holistic perspective, including that kind of a philosophical and, and, and a qualitative investigation. And not to mention, you know, there's a huge area about the data privacy, data ethics, data uh, algorithm transparency, all those things are involving legal studies, involving philosophy debates, involving you know, people's behavior, I mean, all kinds of those things. So what we're trying to really cast that's exactly why I use the word ecosystem, is to present data science in ways that uh, even for those of us proudly call ourselves data scientists may not realize how broad the whole subject is. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Harvard University's Jali Ming, editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review. Jali, you're both uh, an editor of a journal, and you've had a commitment to helping students become uh, better writers. Uh, where did that come from, and how important is it for statisticians as well as you know data scientists to be good writers? Um, and how? Uh, just talk about that challenge. Absolutely. Um, you know, writing and more broadly communication, including uh, speaking and other forms of communication is absolutely crucial, especially think about uh, data science as a holistic ecosystem, because a lot of things we do is not just about, you know, uh, downward research, it's about to communicate to others about why that's important and what's impact. And most importantly, what is the implications and uh, because everything we do, uh, there's also the nature of the ecosystem comes with uh, both positive parts and as well as, as, as negative or even unintended consequences. So, um, you know, throughout my career that I, I benefited tremendously from, uh, you know, uh, my professors, my teachers to help me to think about uh, um, the, um, you know, communications that, uh, um, if you allow me to uh, share you with a, a little story, since mm -hmm. this is that is a mm -hmm. story, yeah, yeah. please. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to tell you that uh, how I really uh, screwed up the first time that I made a presentation, and I learned from that point on that why the communication is absolutely crucial. Um, when I was a student at Harvard, this is really many, many years ago, a long time ago, that we had a requirement of. Um, uh, having a post-qualifying paper, which is required to be about 30 pages, as well as a post-qualifying uh, presentation, which is about 30 minutes. So the first time when I was asked to uh, make a presentation based on my paper, without knowing anything about what the meaning of presentation, I told myself it's perfect. I have 30 pages, I have 30 minutes. Oh no. Oh. And, I did, <laughs> and I know you start to laughing, and, but, but it, was, it, was, it was a true story that I practiced to read every page per minute. Oh. And, and uh -huh. so when I was asked to present, at the time there's no fancy uh, you know, slides, anything, I Xeroxed every single page of my thesis and I start to read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the middle of the first page, it's about like half minutes, and my uh, colleague, which you all know him well, uh, Herman Chenoff, uh, stopped me. And he asked a question, right? I immediately start panic. Right? Yeah. Oh, I, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't budget any time for questions. I didn't even know that <laughs> professor was allowed to ask any questions. <laughs> uh, so 
I just start to mumble jumble something trying to move on. And of course, you know, Herman being Herman that he knew that it was a time to give me a lesson. Oh dear. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Herman stopped me and he said to this day, I still remember what exactly he said. And that's how I've been, I always use this story as, as, uh, as well as to motivate myself and all my students. He said, Shaoli, you're not answering my question. <laughs> right? And you know, I, I, I didn't know how I got out of that, but that was quite clear to me. I had no idea what I was doing. I, <laughs> I basically, I saw, and I knew that lots of students make the same mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think presenting to professors is to show off how much you have done, right? That's exactly what I was doing. Even I didn't uh, think of that way. I was trying to show off, like I have 30 pages research article, right? There are lots of stuff there. I want to, I want to tell everyone what I, what I have done. It was not about communicating. It was not about to make people understand what is one or two key ideas there. Mm-hmm. So that was the sort of my starting point. <laughs> and uh, I really, um, you know, at that time I have to say there's not as much emphasis on communication as is now, but mm-hmm. you know, we still manage to talk, talk to others. I learned and, you know, I love writing. And so that gradually uh, gave me the sense of whether you're communicating in or- orally or writing is always about telling a story. So I love your idea about citizen story because that's mm-hmm. literally how I use that as a metaphor to all my students. I say, well, you should always have a flow. You should always have a punchline, right? Mm-hmm. That's when, when you tell Very a story. Good. And and uh, um, and that is essentially, you know, for publishing. Uh, this HDSR, uh, we also uh, made it very clear to all the authors, we will publish uh, any kinds of materials as long as I only have two requirements there. I don't give them a sort of a cap in terms of how long mm. or how short the article would be. But I said, there's always two things are important. One is the content has to justify the length. The second, it has to be engaging. Right? Mm-hmm. Even for very technical articles, which we will publish, because that's also one aspect of the data science, what we require as uh, or, you know, author's guideline, we require them to write like a summary or, or, or introduction, which we call is media friendly. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the whole idea. Now, uh, I probably should stop here because I've run too long. I want to tell you the story about, not story, the idea of have a student competition later. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh, that's that's great. I I, I do have a story about churn off faces that uh, that uh, someone when I was in grad school, someone was printing off some examples of it, and they uh, at the computer center they killed the job because they oh, thought someone was playing. They, they didn't realize that they were doing something that was a, an analysis. So, um, so I think it's it's great to hear your story. I I'd, I'd like to 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 talk to you about the the tagline or the what you have underneath the description of the Harvard Data Science Review. And I really love the way that you've characterized this as microscopic, telescopic, and kaleidoscopic mm-hmm. views of data science. And I was I was hoping that you might be able to give us just a very short description with an example of of each of those. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I have to say that I don't take the full credit of that. I discussed this with a few of my uh, editorial members. I know they're very much into finding sort of crisp and uh, uh, mm-hmm. catchphrase. And so I worked with them. And for each of them, it's, it's actually quite simple. The, the, the microscopic one is obviously is about exam in detail, right? To take a very, very careful look what we're doing uh, because we really have... Uh, too many things are just, you know, too much hype. Uh, 
uh, you know, out there. So this is the kind of thing that we will be uh, publishing really the deep end of, end of you know, research article. Um, let me give you one specific example, which is not in the first issue, but it will be coming in the second or possibly the, the third issue. And again, from this uh, scholar, uh, you know, her name is Christine Bogman uh, from uh, UCLA. She's a uh, really a guru in information and the library science. She will be publishing an article about, uh, I think the title is when and why and how and what, you know, about why scientists reuse other people's data. Mm. Now, uh, you could easily say, well, you know, sure, we use other people's data because, you know, the data is useful in some way It helps me that. But she, you know, really take a very scholarly view because, you know, she's a library uh, scientist. It's, it's a kind of a social science studies, you know, uh, classified, the, uh, you know, in these works. She talks about foreground use and background use. Right, foreground uses are really for using other people's data to come up with new conclusions. Mm -hmm. Background uses are use other people's data to make a comparisons, mm. right? And 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 uh, what what why that's important? Well, actually, when you use background use data, you probably since you are making comparisons, you probably don't need to know even even uh, of course you should know as much as possible. But it's a lesser requirement to use uh, to use other people's data just to make a comparison, like we all do. You know, the review will say, well, did you compare to somebody else's methods? We say, oh, let's use somebody else's data to showcase what they have done, and here's our answer. And most times, of course, our method is better. That's why we get it published. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but to do the to use other people's data, trying to really to do new discoveries, then you really have to understand far better about how the data were, were collected, because mm. it's not for illustrating purpose. Then you know, her conclusion that if you really want to use other people's data to the foreground, and the typical practice has been the scientists will engage the person or the team originally collect, collect the data to be part of the sort of co-authors, co-team investigators. Mm. Okay. When you make a comparison, you usually don't do that. I mean, you know, there are a lot of uh, interesting stuff is take a very careful look of even seemingly very sort of a common, very benign sort of a practice to look into in a very scholarly way, right? So that's what I meant by taking sort of that kind of sort of sort of microscopic view. And the, the kind of telescope view is is also obvious because we wanted to have that kind of vision. We want this, the, the things like, you know, we probably see from very far, we probably only see a big picture and a lot of details need to be worked out. But at this moment, uh, there are just a lot of issues going on that uh, uh, people are just, just sort of speculating. And that's basically the kind of article we publish in the first section of HDSR, which is the on, on, on these perspectives. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, you know, for example, uh, the article of Michael Jordan on the artificial intelligence, the revolution has not happened yet. Mm -hmm. um, he has his vision, he, his take is, you know, definitely were have too much hype. There are a lot of things that has not happened yet. But if you read these uh, 11 discussions, and they are coming, they're really a variety of uh, leading scholars, as well as uh, uh, people from, you know, government sectors, they have a variety of views, right? Because they have access to a different amount of information, they have, um, you know, different perspectives, they work with different, you know, people. So that's kind of uh, uh, what I call the telescope, because, you know, none of them is sure what the future of AI looks like. Sure. But I'm hoping by putting them together, we will at least get a big picture of the, uh, you know, of the AI scope. And also as a statistician, I would say, you know, in fact, that uh, probably the big picture lies in the variation instead of having a single view. Oh. So that's the 
kind of you know kind of telescope uh, view. And the last one, I can't even pronounce that word correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the kaleidoscopic. Because yeah. I how do you pronounce it correctly? Yeah, kaleidoscopic. Kaleidoscopic. Okay, I know exactly what I wanted. That's I know the Chinese phrase of it, but I talk to my colleagues, then they give me the English <laughs> phrase. And, uh, so, so my understanding of that phrase is that's essentially is like a variety. That's essentially yes. like you know you see all kinds of uh, interesting shapes, the colors, things are moving, and that's basically we want to showcase that the the Harvard Data Science Review is to publish any kinds of articles. And you probably see from the first issue, we already have articles from philosophers, social scientists, uh, computer scientists. We have historians of science. We publish articles on the computing as well, uh, as, well as on the uh, education, right? That's another aspect I would love to emphasize more later. And uh, moving forward, that we're really gonna look forward, uh, 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 look for all kinds of articles. I can tell you very briefly, then I should stop. Uh, <laughs> we are creating columns, for example, one of them I created is called uh, Rec Recreations in Randomness. We're gonna publish <laughs> data science on sports, art, entertainment, pastime, you name it. That kind of uh, sort of things, the general public says, oh, you know, there's something of interest to me and uh, it's something I can relate. And uh, we will use that as a pedagogical moment to engage the readers to think a little bit more broadly uh, you know, how do you go about it in a more rigorous way? That sounds great. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you, you mentioned something somewhere along the way about a student competition. So before we before we end our conversation, I'd like to hear about that. Sure. Let me be very brief. Uh, the idea is that if you have these very technical articles, and as I said, we will publish the technical articles, one way is to ask, ask the authors to write uh, uh, executive summary or some what I what we call the media friendly uh, you know mm -hmm. a summary now uh, but there's another way of doing it uh, which is to get students involved we're thinking about mm -hmm. have a competition right with the article is is posted then we we have a competition which we would welcome any students that are not necessarily PhDs or graduate high schools, whoever can write, right? Because this will be a pedagogical moment itself. The students mm -hmm. need to read the article and to understand well enough to summarize in a in a, in a in a plain language. And I also have a feeling that by doing that, it might be better uh, than the author write themselves mm -hmm. because authors tend to overemphasize certain aspects because they are they're very fond of tend to be more technical <laughs> they try to water it down but as someone else reading it, a particular student reader they probably will you know they may or may not get get right but but through the competition i can even discover you know how people understand this article if everyone comes back have something which is not the author intended then i have to blame the author not everyone else right? so, <laughs> okay so that's the kind of process that we're thinking about we we have not really put together the, 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 the mechanism yet, but that's what we want to do because that serves both the purpose of serving the general public, but also has a strong education component and, and, and also goes so well with the idea of training the student to do better writing because mm. that kind of writing is not easy, but if somebody can do well, it's incredibly useful. That's great. Very yeah, good. That sounds good. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you for being here, Jali. Thank you very much. Time is always too short. <laughs> Indeed. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.